Welcome to Canthropod. This is episode 15, an interview with Ilana Gershon by Oliver Balch. My name is Oliver Balch. I'm a part-time PhD student at Cambridge University and when away from my books, I earn my keep as a freelance journalist. An increasingly precarious career choice, this way of making my living places me at the heart of what is increasingly termed the gig economy. So it is not only with great excitement but considerable self-interest that I am sitting down to talk with Alana Gershon today, a leading scholar on new media, neoliberalism and the changing world of work. Her current research addresses how new media affects hiring in the contemporary US workplace. This is the subject of her latest book, Down and Out in the New Economy, which came out in April 2017, and which is the theme of this current Canthropod podcast. So, Ilana, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me to this. In your new book, Down and Out in the New Economy, you explore how people are responding to new ways of thinking about work and what it means to be a worker in the US. People, you argue, are gradually moving away from thinking that when they enter into an employment contract, they are metaphorically renting their capacities to an employer for a bounded period of time. Instead, you argue, they are starting to think of themselves as though they are a business. The metaphor you use is that of self as rented property and the self as business. In a nutshell, Alana, what do you precisely mean by these two terms and and how do they alter how people conceive of themselves as workers? Well, the reason I started this research is that I, at a a particular point in anthropology, I was surrounded by the term neoliberalism and I was going to all these talks that had neoliberalism in the title or I would pick up an article that had neoliberalism. I think maybe like 70% of my academic life was surrounded by this term and I never knew why people were using neoliberalism instead of capitalism. So most of the time I was really frustrated by trying to think about how to make neoliberalism into a more precise and rigorous term so I could understand how to differentiate it from Mm -hmm. capitalism. And one of the things that I ended up doing was thinking if I use um, hiring as a platform to start thinking about how capitalism has changed, maybe instead of having the comparative project be between cultures, I can do it historically and thus think about what is specific and distinct about neoliberalism as opposed to other earlier forms of capitalism. And by looking at hiring, I ended up realizing that talking about these two metaphors was a way to make this really much more rigorous. So I began to realize that the ways in which people understood how they were representing themselves um, to employers previously had been very much along the lines of seeing themselves as rentable property. So the CV was a history of where they had been and what capacities they had available to them to kind of bring to the job. Um, and a lot of the labor union battles also that had been taking place earlier all surrounded the metaphor of self as rentable property because when you rent yourself to an employer for a particular period of time, you get yourself back. And so the boundary between work and personal life was very clear for everyone. So people would argue about, can you bound this? So can you have a 40 hour work week? Or they would argue about whether donning a uniform in preparation for your shift was something that the employer should pay for, 
or that you should be responsible for. So there were all these arguments around the boundaries, but what was very interesting for me is that people didn't actually talk about the boundaries as something that needed to be managed. So people didn't say until around the 1990s that you had to imagine a work-life balance because that was given in the metaphor. You didn't have to manage it as a balance. But then in the wake of Margaret Thatcher and in the wake of Ronald Reagan, people began to start dealing with changes in the government policy that were reflecting a kind of neoliberal logic that had been brought in through Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek. They began to imagine themselves as a business and being told that they had to imagine themselves as a business in order to be hired. So I'm not... I, 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 I think the way I've just put it makes it sound as though people were eager mm. to do this, and I think that's far from the case. People were sometimes experimenting with this, but many times they're just being told that they need to imagine themselves as a business. And when you imagine yourself as a business, you're entering into a business-to-business -business relationship with your employer, and that really changes the dynamic. And why hiring? Why is that the key inflection point? Why not study people in work or indeed out of work or retirees? Why, why do you think hiring is, is, is so... so... So hiring for me was a really nice place to begin looking at this, um, in part because it was a space where people are anxious and willing to adopt new logics. They want to get a job and they're ready to deal with things pragmatically. And it's also a space in which you are surrounded by advice. What I wanted to do was find a place where people were constantly telling each other what to do and how to do it. Mm. And so I could see explicitly how a neoliberal logic was being explained to other people. And what I hoped to see was that I would see some resistance and people would be thinking through, well, this particular version, this particular metaphor works for me in some ways and doesn't work in others, and would be able to talk to me consciously about what was being successful about this perspective and what mm. wasn't. Because what I really want to know was not how to criticize neoliberalism from the outside. People know how to do that in anthropology and do it very well. What I wanted to know is what were the fault lines in living this way? What are the ways that if we want to start persuading people to perhaps not engage with this logic as wholeheartedly, we need to be able to point to them where it doesn't work pragmatically for them in their own lives. It's very interesting you wanted to work from within that logic, working yeah. with people that have sort of bought into it and perhaps struggling with it as well. Tell us a bit about your field site. You worked with people in the knowledge economy in the Bay Area. Is that correct? Why did you choose so, them? What kind of jobs were they doing? So, so I don't think that I chose the Bay Area. I think the God of Fieldwork Grants <laughs> chose the Bay Area for me. Um, I... I I actually had wanted to go to New York. I thought New York would be a, a, a good place for me to do this research. And for personal reasons, I thought New York would also be a delightful place for me to go. We all have these kinds of compromises that we're making, anticipating all the um, personal ties that we have. Um, the God of Fieldwork Grants wanted me to go to um, Stanford. And so I got a fellowship a residential fellowship at Stanford. It was the only residential fellowship that I applied for, and I didn't get any of my grants to go to New York. So I ended up in the Bay Area. And when I was in the Bay Area, I was very worried that this book was going to become 
a, a, an ethnography of Silicon Valley, too focused on Silicon Valley, um, because I felt that that would make people skeptical of the kind of claims that I was about to make about how general this was and what how the hiring ritual was really being affected. So I tried my best to not make this as regionally specific as possible. So I interviewed people in the Midwest, I interviewed people on the East Coast, but most of, and, and when I was at Indiana University, I went to comparable workshops that I attended in the Bay Area. And in the Bay Area, what I did for this research is I went to all the free workshops on how to create a personal brand or how to create a LinkedIn profile or how to write a resume or how to do some a genre of performance that I'm not sure has migrated to the UK, which is how to conduct an informational interview, um, which is an in an interview that you are supposed to have with no expectation of getting a job, but simply you are talking to someone in the company or you're talking to someone in the career that you would like to participate in and asking them questions about what it is like to do this, which sounds an awful lot like an ethnographic interview um, to me. Uh, if we could move to some of the implications for the individual of this shift from self as rentable property to self as business. Um, one that struck me was the relationship between a job and a career. Yes. Historically, they would have been seen as one of the same. You go into a job at 18, you stay there till you're 65, ideally, and your yes. job was your career. Have those now diverged? Everyone was telling me that a job is only temporary um, and that what you have to do is think of yourself as putting together a string of jobs to, to have a career. What this one of the things that this implies, which is why I started interviewing job quitters, is that people who are choosing the job or applying for particular jobs now are often anticipating the, whether that job will be help, good to, and help them get the next job. And so they apply for a job anticipating quitting that job from the get-go. And if they have two job offers, one of the ways in which they're choosing between the two job offers is deciding which places them in a better position to get the next job. Hmm. I wonder as well, you mentioned before this concept of work-life balance didn't really sort of exist before. You went in at nine, you finished yeah. at five, there were some arguments amongst the unions about whether you had to pay right. to get to work or not. But essentially, you hired yourself out, you rented that time, and then you left the office, you left the yeah. factory, and yes. you were on your own terms. That line has blurred in a major way now, yes. presumably, if, if even you're, you're working a couple of hours on this project, a couple of hours on that project, potentially taking late, late night calls. Right. Um, how, how are people dealing with, with, with that? Is that something they welcome? Is it something that they thrive on? Is it something they're struggling with? So Melissa Gregg has a beautiful book about this in which she talks about how extremely complicated it is for people to manage. I think the amount of self-help literature that is out there indicates that my sense that people are very unhappy about this is being confirmed. People are able to sell an incredible amount of advice because people have, find this just too overwhelming. I mean, part of it, part of, it of course, is that we now are surrounded by technologies that don't allow us to indicate that we are not available easily, that there are all these expectations that we are putting on each other entirely to expect rapid response. And 
I, I'm, I'm trying to urge everyone I know to expect very slow email responses from each other because this is something that it's not just the fact that the technologies exist, but the expectations that we are putting on these technologies about how other people are going to live in and interact with the technologies that are making mm. this much worse. You suggested that the shift happened around that when neoliberalism really sort of yes. took off and, and Thatcher and Reagan. Um, Obviously, these technologies weren't available back then. Uh, which is driving it first? Is it is it the technologies that have sort of um, have, have made this uh, what already existed possible, or, or are they creating something new with oh, respect so, so, to the so I think, work I, I think for me, it's very clear that it's the ideology that is doing this, and the technologies are designed to make that ideology come to life. And so you could design technologies in any way that you would like, but in fact, the ways in which LinkedIn is designed or the ways in which Facebook is designed has embedded within it a concept that its users will inhabit mm. this particular life. I want to ask you some questions about this personal branding that you, that you referenced before and some fascinating um, research in your book about CVs. But before we do that, just one question that occurred to me as you were speaking about um, about the relationship of the employee towards or the contractor. Contractor, is that a word you're more comfortable with than employee? Oh, I actually say employee or employee, worker. Employee, yeah. so, but a sort of more contractual yeah. temporary employee with their employer has changed dramatically. So beforehand, the emotion that you wanted your employee to right. to um, to evoke it was was loyalty towards right. the brand towards the company. Right. You stayed there. They looked after you. You right. looked after them. Yeah. Uh, if you're just flying in and flying out, if you're always looking the next right. job, what is the emotion that employees are feeling towards their employer? And what is the ideal emotion that the employer would like them to so, be feeling? So I found this really fascinating because there are any number of emotions that you could have to bring someone into a sense of obligation to you. Right, guilt works really, really well <laughs> on me. Like, convince me that I f should feel guilty about something, and I will stay up very, very late at night. But the, the guilt isn't what people turn to. It isn't that employers all became kind of complex Jewish mothers, but instead, what people began to turn to was describing passion for the task at hand. And what's very interesting for me is when you insists that a worker feels passion for the work and that this is what you're going to be screening for when you are hiring, you're not actually asking that they feel any strong emotion for the company and you're not asking that they feel strong emotions for their co-workers. So it's not the place or the context in which you're asking them to experience a strong emotion. It is And what happens with the changing nature of skills. So you say, you know, itself as business, we're a bundle of skills, assets, yes. qualities, experiences, and relationships. Um, a skill used to be uh, fixing the engine of a car or knowing yes. how to sew. A skill now is teamwork. It's um, communication, communication of almost any kind. So how do you quantify those things in this way that you're being demanded to do now? in any number of ways that you could imagine. I mean, so, so this is work that I'm getting from Bonnie Urcioli, who has a very lovely discussion about how skills are being transformed into 
something that can be used to apply for any kind of interaction or any kind of experience. And then the question becomes, how do you, what, what ways can you explain that you could potentially measure it, right? So left 70% of all my customers happy when they call this consumer kind of call center. That kind of thing is what people are supposed to put mm. on their um, CVs. Though I think 70% might be lowballing it, yeah. unless it was a real complaints department. Right. It's described invariably in the media as exploitative. Need it necessarily be exploitative? Is are there some um, are there other upsides for the employee in this relationship? So, so, so there are people in who are using Airbnb, and there are Uber drivers who find this useful. It's not always fundamentally exploitative but it's exploitative large if in in this there, there are many ways in which in the small details it's exploitative and one of the ways in which it is exploitative is that it disguises size so it is a very large uber company the uber company is quite large entering it into a contract with an individual in which the company the, the fact that these two are two completely different sizes with different capacities and resources available to them is disguised yeah. entirely. And Uber also tries to describe itself as only being a platform to allow the customer to contract with the driver and then hides all the ways in which it is structuring the, contra- the interaction and structuring the contract. This is absolutely fascinating, Lana. Thank you very much for talking to us about your new book uh, uh, I wonder if we could just finish with a question a- around your theoretical concerns and where you see this research uh, uh, how you see this research speaking to the anthropology of capitalism neoliberalism the anthropology of corporations I wonder if there's something around a focus less on institutions and systems and the order of capitalism uh, and and, and firms being that are subject to the individual, to the individual that participates in capitalism. What do you mean? Well, your focus, instead of looking at how uh, corporations relate to one another, how, yes. how they exist in this broader system, to yes. the, the insights that can be gleaned from focusing on the individual participant within the capitalist system, whether there's uh, an opportunity for anthropologists to study from, from within and at the micro level rather than at a more macro level. Right. So so what I wanted to know was um, how to treat people in my fieldwork as social analysts in their own right and understand how they were experiencing being told that they had to engage with the neoliberal logic and when and how they picked it up. So in a sense, my question is saying, okay, look, I'm committed to believing um, Phil Morofsky's narrative of how neoliberalism was introduced into the United States and into Austria and into Europe, Australia, Asia, etc., which is, it's a particular small group of people who became very committed 
as ec economists to this particular perspective and then trained students and infiltrated think tanks to be able to start transforming government policy. But once you transform government policy, according to this, you have to get people on the ground to figure out how to implement this and how to go along. So in some sense, I think what I'm doing is asking about neoliberalism, the question that anthropologists of the Soviet Union and of um, communist e Eastern Europe were asking as well, which is, you have Marx, how do you actually implement Marx's philosophy? And in both cases, right, both transforming Hayek into something that is lived and transforming Marx into something that is lived, it has become radically different in certain ways than what the philosophers themselves believed in. I mean, Hayek believed in universal health care and thought that this was a good thing to have in order to have everybody enter into the market and mention that in the United States to people who understand themselves to be Hayekian, like Paul Ryan, and this would be considered anathema. So my question really was, how do you live according to these logics? And when do these logics break down for you? Because just living with uh, other people means that any model that you have is going to be inadequate. And you're going to have to come up with solutions on the fly for particular problems that arise as you try to apply the models. I did, I did say that was my last question, but another question has just occurred to me. That's my fine. last, last one, if you'll, if you'll permit okay. me. I wonder how do these new logics uh, apply to the academy? I all too often, um, all too often the conversations I have at conferences and with academics is about how people are trying to turn the university into a corporation and what does it mean to transform how you publish and how you teach into something that can be turned into metrics, how you are being evaluated according to this logic. I think that this is um, one of the things that is really undercutting what education can and should do. Um, but the universities are really struggling because in order to get funding and in order to have support, they have to deal with people who are determined to apply this logic to absolutely every arena of life. Um, one of the more nefarious things, can I leave on the note of um, one of the things that I try to tell graduate students and people who are looking for jobs, the same thing, is that personal branding was actually really destructive and piece of advice that I heard and that really seemed to waste everybody's time. Um, so people who were hiring didn't seem to care about anybody's personal brand. That wasn't what they wanted to know. They wanted to know whether this person could do the work that they wanted to have done. And as someone who has been on hiring committees, I have never noticed anybody commenting on someone's personal brand as a job applicant or caring about personal brand or the techniques that are supposed to come with a personal brand in any way in looking for who they wanted to hire into a department. Well, talk of academia in the new economy reminds me that you're a busy professional academic. So with regret, I'm going to suggest that we wrap up there. Once again, Ilana, many thanks for coming in to speak to us for this Canthropod podcast and for what has been a fascinating discussion about your new book, Down and Out in the New Economy. 
As a member of the gig economy myself, I found it particularly insightful. Rest assured, first thing I'll be doing when I get back to my desk is rewriting my CV. Thank you.